Okay, so this is part two of the series on becoming a so-called scholar. Uh, this show is called Unstandardized English. My name is JPB Gerald and I am the host and I'm kind of the show too. Um, you know, before this series, I had seven episodes with interviews in a row and then I had one that was a presentation and then I had these three. And after this, something big is coming, folks. Something big is coming. Um, I am joining a podcast network. Yeah. Now, what does that mean for you as a listener? Literally nothing. Uh, if you subscribe to the show, it'll be easier to listen to it. And the audio will be better. The audio's okay now, but it'll be better. I'm going to delete the subway from the background and that sort of thing. Um, and... You know, it's uh, it, it'll be really a uh, a good scenario for the podcast because I'm able to combine with other people to build an audience, and I, I enjoy all of you. But it would be nice for more people to hear this. Um, you may occasionally hear an ad. Hopefully, it won't be too many of those awkward ads I, I, I wrote for the the service that I'm using now, Anchor. Um, but hopefully it'll be actual sponsorships and then, you know, uh, there'll be more support coming in. That means it'll be, my transcripts will be better. Um, the guests I get on will continue to be interesting, but they'll be even more interesting. And yeah, so that's, uh, that's the plan that will start with the, I believe March 7th episode, just two episodes after this, um, this is coming out in February and then there, there, sorry, late January, there'll be one more in February and then I'm taking one little break and then I'll come back with a sort of relaunch of the show season you know mid-season break before season three second half um so yeah that's what's going on um if you like the show as ever please uh consider contributing to the patreon the link is in the show description um otherwise enjoy the show this part covers I stopped last time at my decision to write about altruistic shield and I'm going to cover up until I got a book deal so. Okay, so let's keep going. Um, so where we left off two weeks ago, I was talking about how I came home from that conference and I was really interested in peeking at this idea of people who were really altruistic, but it still didn't stop them from doing racist shit. Um, and I said, I wanted to write about this. And, you know, I finished my semester and in the summer of 2019, um, you know, we had, we had to take one class on literacy where honestly, although I haven't had a class with her since. I would say that that professor was definitely one of my absolute favorite professors, one of my favorite educators who's ever taught me, Roseanne Kirsten. She was an adjunct. Um, I mean, she has a doctorate, but she was just doing a lot of freelance stuff. And she really, there was an empathy she had for her students that uh, was almost unparalleled. But anyway, and that class was really interesting. And we learned a lot, and it challenged a lot of ideas. I even talked on the phone about some of my work, and she, she really... She really liked what I did. And I keep saying that egotistically, like, oh, they like what I did, so they must be good. But I just mean, like, she, she saw what I was trying to do, you know? Um, so anyway, but that didn't challenge too much about what I was doing. The other quote-unquote class I had was uh, I had a class, uh, and I had the option of taking a separate class, a second, I think, I can't remember second statistics class or no a motivation class 
And uh, I decided to take an independent study. This independent study was basically me choosing a professor to work with and just writing something. I said, I'm going to write an article and I'm going to try to get it published. I'm a first, just finished my first year doctoral student. What's the worst that can happen? It doesn't get published? Well, that's just normal. In fact, I did better at this point than I've done since then. Um, so I picked one of my language professors. I probably should have picked the older one, but whatever. And uh, I started writing. I wrote what was maybe 13 pages? I don't know. It was three or 4,000 words. And uh, I, submit, I submitted it to my professor. She came back with a whole bunch of stuff to cross out and change. And then I took the edits and changed it. And she was really impressed by my changes. She said, you really listened to the edits I gave. I don't know why she was surprised. Maybe people are bad at this. I know I can be bad at it sometimes. Right now, I'm in the middle of a project that I really don't want to be doing. So that's probably why some people are bad at it. Um, so then I submitted it at the end of the summer to a journal. And, you know, while all that's going on, uh, I've been talking my wife's ear off about just ideas I'm having outside of school. Not only am I complaining about people wanting extensions, but... I'm also just talking about the things I'm learning and I'm really digging into stuff about, uh, you know, race and that sort of thing. And, you know, we have arguments about it. Um, it's not her fault. It's just like, the funny thing is we, we are really on the same page in terms of these ideas now. And we had sort of had to go through that crucible, um, in a lot of ways. But anyway, she told me, Justin, why don't you create a show? Like go out there and talk. You have good things to say. Part of me thinks she just wanted to, shut me up and stop having to hear about it. But she didn't because she still has to hear about it. So <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, I created the show. And my initial, if you remember from the beginning, my initial uh, idea was I was going to, I created a list, a spreadsheet, as I do, of words and phrases that are seemingly racially neutral that actually have implications. Um, I had a whole bunch like professional, right? Proper, standard, right? Um, fluency. If you hear these words, you can see that these are a lot of the episodes I had in my first season. But um, so the first word I thought of was expats and immigrants. And I asked my friend, Rob, if he wanted to have a discussion about it. And we had a really interesting discussion, and it was weird. The first, I mean, I did. I was a little nervous about my show because I had started not just listening to the Vocal Fries, but supporting them on Patreon, not with a lot of money, but I didn't have, as far as I could tell, a lot to give them. And then I asked them questions. You know, I was a big fan. I submitted comments to them. They read it on the show, um, and I asked them on Twitter, like, you know, how'd you get comfortable with your voices? And I didn't mean that to disparage their voices, but I. Uh, I just wanted to know how they got it, you know, listening to their voices. Because even if I don't edit that much, although I should more, and when I join this new network, I'm going to have to. It's an expectation of theirs. But um, you do have to listen to the episodes before you put them out to the world. And one of the things that I was nervous about is that I didn't like my voice. 
I don't love it now, but I'm okay with it. And, you know, I have not a particularly low voice, um, especially for a, a man or a person who identifies as male. Um, I don't have a particularly quote unquote masculine voice. This has always been an issue for me. There have been a lot of people who disparage my voice throughout my life. Um, I mean, I'm short too, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of ways that I don't match up with what, um, the expectations of masculinity are. Only recently have I started to not care about these things or deliberately tried to move away from them because, yeah. But I was like, are people going to like listening to me talk? You know? But I did it. I said, it's just, you know, I'm kind of a jump in with two feet person. And uh, so I jumped in, I did it, and I put it up the next day. And I just like people listen, not a lot, you know, a couple of dozen. But that was pretty cool. I didn't create the Twitter page for it until months later because BJ, who of course has been on the show many times, suggested it. But uh, yeah, so you know that was really fun, and I uh, started putting that show together, and I got really into it. And let's be clear, my job is boring. I also wasn't focused on my work, and I was not doing well at work at the time, and I was using this to ignore some stuff that I should have been doing. Oops. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so in the fall of 2019, my real focus was this. At the same time, you know, I had submitted that article for, for review and it hadn't come back yet. And the two classes I was in that fall were really pivotal. Um, that fall, I had two classes and one, one of them was the quantitative research class. And I've mentioned this class many times and how that class sort of soured me on all quantitative research, not because I had a bad professor. She did her job very well. She's a quantitative researcher. She believed strongly in validity and reliability and all those things. And we had to come up with a proposal for a quantitative project. When I went into that class, I still believed that I was going to do something. I knew I was going to do something with race and language, but I was going to come up with some like racial literacy score that I could market and people could quote unquote, do well on it. It was going to be, it was going to be an app, actually. I was going to come up with it. This is, is very silly, but, but this is my idea. I come up with an app um, that people could put in the things that they were watching and consuming and everything would be rated on like how much, how anti-racist or whatever it was. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's very silly. It's very silly. But, um, so, but she told me and she was right that coming up with a mechanism to measure, she said that could be a decade of work. And, and I, 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 as you know about me, I don't, part of the reason I do this podcast is I don't have any patience. So I could not spend 10 years hopefully coming up with something that might work. If I did it, it would set me up for life, right? Like the Harvard implicit bias people, right? Like the people who come up with that, they don't have to do anything else. They still do it, but they're done. Even if the stuff is nonsense, like grit, you come up with that, you're done. Um, although Angela Duckworth is still out there farting all over the place. But um, so she disabused me of the notion that I was going to come up with some sort of racial score, which, by the way, would have been terrible. Uh, it's a bad idea. It's not a way to fight racism, but that was my idea. Um, and then I, was, I came up with this project in that class that was about she, – she really was sort of 
pushing me on like not making any claims that I couldn't back up. Now there was some of this was really true. Like now in my writing, I don't make any concrete claims if I don't back it up. But she was also pushing me on certain things. Like I had to source the existence of racism. Now, she was, again, just like my professor I talked about in the last episode, she was trying to set us up for publication, right? And so she knew if I tried to publish a quantitative article and I simply made claims about racism, the impact of racism, they were going to send it back with comments about needing proof, which I found out later when someone asked me to write for them for educational researcher and I did not get accepted. Um, but this pissed me off. It's like racism, like we shouldn't need to prove this to you. I'm not, I wasn't mad at her. Um, but she's like quantitative research in general. I came up with a topic there that was about something about um, just world, like the belief in a just world or a just world fa- fallacy and how people who score low on some mechanism of believing in the just world would be ripe for anti-racist training. I still believe that. People who don't inherently believe in a just world or a world where if you work hard, you will have more success um, are probably the type of people who, if given guidance, will do better at challenging racism. Because if you believe the world is, is, is just, but you just need to change a few things, then you're not going to be into really challenging power. So I do believe that. I wrote this paper and I, you know, again, did well in the grades. This is the last time I'm going to measure my grades because this is the last time my grades were questioned. Um, so that was fine. I also had a class on, like, leading for change or some dumb shit. I don't know. That professor, he was a nice man, but, like, he just had some, which is surprising because he only got his doctorate in, like, 2005. But he just had some really outdated ideas. We were we were reading, like, business MBA books. Um, he had us, uh, reading things, watching things about like who moved my cheese and it's about people's motivation. It's very growth mindset before growth mindset existed, you know? And, uh, you know, it was just like a problem. Like that class was terrible anyway. So in that class, I mean, we're some interesting readings, but it was just very, it was archaic. In that class, uh, I came. we came up with a group and a project that what we were going to do was try to increase the retention of uh, teachers of color. And we were going to do it by doing X, Y, and Z. I don't even remember now. More than two years ago, actually, which is weird. Um, but the thing I didn't like about it was that he was really harsh on our grammar. Not even like we got our citation stuff right, but he was really harsh on our grammar and I don't like it when people do that, especially because my group was, except for one woman, all people of color. Now, he wasn't doing it on purpose. But again, when you happen to be doing it to a group of people of color, it perpetuates certain myths. Um, I could tell that there were people in my group who, for whether it was skill or experience, like, you know, used grammar differently. But I understood what they said, so I didn't care. I wasn't, I did not, you know, it was a shame. The first paper, he gave us a really low score, and I was worried about all of our grades. So I said, I'll edit it, and I made it all look standard, and I felt bad about it, but we got a better grade. Um, This is not me saying how good I am. It's like, I was just playing this 
Professor's Gate. Um, and then we uh, we go to you know the end of the thing, and we did a really good presentation, and we got an A anyway. So I don't know. Again, that's the last time I'm gonna mention my grades because after that, I literally stopped checking. I know what they are because I have to submit my grades every uh, semester for reimbursement. But yeah, at work at this time, I was doing poorly. I got in trouble. I screwed up a project and I was using school to not think about the fact that I was in trouble and that things were really not going well at work. This was really when my, in retrospect, my unmanaged ADHD was sort of taking over and I was not following through on projects. And, I, and everyone thinks he's smart. Why can't he finish things? Which has been you know, true of my whole life, right? He's smart. Why is he so lazy? He's smart. Why is he so annoying? You know? Yeah, I have a lot to say about that. Anyway, so that semester ended, and around that time, I had received comments back on my article, the Altruistic Shield article. They said, well, we like this, but maybe instead of being a feature article, because it was an opinion piece, which it is, most of my work, because I didn't have, I don't have any empirical research. Well, now with my dissertation I do, but before that, I didn't have any of my own research, so it was all just their arguments, right? It's a conceptual piece. How about we put this in, quote-unquote, alternative perspectives, where they basically put a short article with some more radical ideas at the front of the journal, which, you know, whatever. They said, well, you need to cut it down to 1,500 words. I don't know if you know how long 1,500 words is. That's just like two fucking pages. <laughs> My Altruistic Shield article is two and a half pages. I had to condense a 3,500 article. I had to cut more than half of the article out. Um, and even so, like I used the phrase color blindness, and I didn't learn about the phrase color evasiveness until like a couple of months later. And uh, I wish I could change it. But um, I knew cynically the, the only way, because I knew my program, but I want to be clear about this. I selected this program because it's a practitioner program for people who work in full time. And most of my classmates are K-12 workers. Um, some of them are principals. Some of them, most of them are K-12 teachers. And, you know, for the vast majority of them are not trying to be professors. That's not bad. It's not good. It just is. Um, and I didn't assume that I would be a professor. It's not a program built, like, it's not a fully funded program where you go into a hole for nine years and you come out and you're ready to be a professor, right? Um, I didn't want that. And this wasn't what it was giving me. But I didn't know what I wanted to do when I finished. Didn't matter my first two years. I had time. But now here we are in year four and I'm about to finish. And I'm like, I need to figure it out. Um, and, uh, so at the time I was just thinking about like, you know, what do I even want to do in the long term? And, uh, in thinking about what I wanted, I knew if I was getting this article published and it seemed likely that I was going to get it published, uh, I said, I need to like come up with some ideas, some new ideas, some terms. So part of my thinking of altruistic shield was like, this is not a phrase that's been coined yet. Does that mean it'll be super influential, like racial linguistic ideologies? No. But it, if I propagate it, it, you know, it'll become part of my work. And it's, it's in my book. So, um, And it's interesting. Like, how do you come up with a term? Well, I literally Googled around and confirmed that nobody had put altruistic shield together. I wanted to use altruistic, and I was trying to think of it as altruistic, like shield, altruistic defense, altruistic, whatever. But shield worked, and it, it's true. Um, I wanted to come up with a, bit, a better graphic that looked like a knight with a shield, and whatever. 
Couldn't do it. For those who don't know who are listening, which I can't imagine is very many of you, but if I have any new listeners, Altruistic Shield is a profession, not good intentions themselves, but a profession and the reputation of the profession being used as a preemptive defense against being complicit in racism, white supremacy, whiteness, right? So that's like, you believe that because you are a teacher of poor black kids or a social worker in a poor area or a nurse in a poor area that you can't possibly be perpetuating racism because you're helping them. It's not the same as white saviorism. It's related to it. It's part of it. Um, It's not the same as white fragility, right? But it is specifically believing that your profession exempts you from self-examination on this front. It is very common in language teachers because we, I go to all these conferences, people talk about how reward is so reward. It's I'm reward, 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 you know. So that's altruistic shit. Anyway, so I shortened it, but they said it was going to be in the journal. So I had my first publication. And my program is, it's not, you know, when I, I part of the reason I even joined Twitter and this is, I should have mentioned this last time, but in my first semester, I, I had Twitter from like 2009, but I didn't use it. I went back and looked at my Twitter, right, my old Twitter recently, and I was just looking to see if I said anything offensive. I'm not the kind of person who goes online and says offensive stuff, but I've learned things. And so there's aspects of oppression that I might have engaged in. Certainly maybe fat phobia, or I might have said the wrong thing about trans people, not on purpose, but if I didn't know the terms at the time, not that I'd be trying to make fun of people, but I just mean like I was describing something. Somebody, I might have said the wrong thing, you know, 10 years ago. Not like the stuff people get canceled over, quote unquote canceled. I don't believe in that stuff, but I just, um, but, you know, I wasn't yelling, but I, I simply might have used the wrong term. The same way pe- a lot of people think obese is a slur, it would have theoretically been impossible for me to use the word obese just normally, not to be mean to somebody. But anyway, I went and looked at my old tweets. The only time I ever went on Twitter, because I never use it on my phone, um, was during live events. I would turn Twitter on during like elections, um, like the night to see the news, or like Super Bowl, or like the Oscars, or like a, a, a sports, a, you know, baseball game. That's it. That's all I ever used Twitter for. Every single tweet was about a live event. I never, I didn't have any followers. You know, I used Facebook the way people use Twitter. Like I would put a bunch of posts on there, and I don't really use Facebook like that anymore. So anyway, there's nothing to get rid of. But I started using Twitter and, and like my, my dean actually said, it's a good idea to connect with people, you know, who have like-minded ideas. Um, and he was right. So, you know, Dean Michael Middleton, if he ever listens to this, he doesn't, but maybe he could. Uh, it was right. And, and I wouldn't have gotten any of the stuff I've gotten if I hadn't. It's weird to credit things to Twitter, but it's the people on Twitter. The same way I don't believe in academia, but I believe in academics. I don't believe in Twitter, but I believe in the people I've met through Twitter. Um, I don't believe, I don't mean believe in, like believe it exists. I mean believe in, like support. You know what I mean. Um, so, you know, I had the, the thing to come out, to be published, and that was really exciting. And that was, you know, around Christmas of 2019. In fact, it was actually published on Christmas Eve 2019. The journal came out in January, so my citation date is still 2020, but I got the, the proof on Christmas Eve. And that was really exciting. My dad was really excited. Everybody's really excited. My dad told me to send it to some prominent professors. Nobody's reading my shit. <laughs> I'm just some guy. Uh, although, uh, 
you know, late, my second article caused a big enough stir that some prominent people did read it. Anyway, um, so that was cool. And, you know, Ezel was about to be born, and I was really nervous about that. And we had just moved within our building. And, you know, I was ready for my next semester. And so in the spring of 2020, I went to class, and I had a, a qualitative research class, and I had a disability class, and that was a really influential one. Let me talk about the qualitative research class first. There was some really interesting stuff in there. I learned about different methods. I ended up using narrative inquiry. Um, I'm not sure my professor and I were on the same wavelength. I didn't dislike her. We just not the same wavelength. And that's fine. You don't have to be on the same wavelength. I didn't have a problem with her. I'm just spilling tea here, I guess. Um, and my other professor, uh, Catherine Bulgaridis, became my dissertation chair. I had never met her before. It was her first year in my school. Um, and she was teaching the disabilities class. And, you know, she made us fucking work. She had us doing a like journal every class. My classmates, as ever, were complaining about the amount of work. Um, and it was a lot of work, but I really, you know, and then she, the, the, they send around chances to publish, you know, call for proposals for chapters. And I decided I would submit a personal narrative about disability back when I was undiagnosed, talking about how I probably had ADHD and how this had affected me. The funny thing is, as I record this on December 3rd, 2021, I know I recorded this a while ago, um, this shit still hasn't come out. <laughs> uh, academia is so slow. So I wrote. So anyway, in that disability studies class, I wrote um, this personal narrative, and I told my professor, like, I'm gonna write it for this proposal, which means I have to finish it by a certain date. And if it gets in, it gets in. And if it doesn't get in, okay, fine. So I wrote it, and it got in. Obviously, if it hadn't gotten in, I don't think I would have gone all the way down this path of disability studies um, in my writing. But it got in. I I got in on the proposal. Like I got in on the like what I told him I would write. And uh, you know, I, I, I it's the first time where I feel like I got in based on a snippet of just like it must have been writing talent. It must have been or what their assessment of my writing talent. What is talent? Um, it must have been you know. Uh, I don't know what it must have been, but the point is that uh, I got into that. And we really vibed, and she was really impressed with the work I was doing. Um, and I knew nothing about disability studies, but one of the one of my Bibles now is this book by Nielsen, uh, The Disability History of the United States. It's really interesting, but I didn't realize how closely disability was tied to race and racism. You've heard me talk about this on this show, especially in the season premiere this year. Um, there is no concept of disability that we currently have if there had not been slavery. I'll just put it that way, right? The concept of being mentally or neurologically disabled is part of how they justified having slaves because white people have never wanted to be the bad guy. They had to convince themselves they were the good guy. And if these people could not function by themselves, then they needed to, they needed to go, you know, enslave them. Um, and that really changed a lot about it because I was just like, analyzing race and whiteness was interesting, but, you know, whatever. So before that semester started, you know, the thing about it is I like to keep going. And, you know, you get like five weeks between December and January in, you know, universities. And I just, I can't wait. So I did two things in that January. Like, 
again, Ezel hadn't been born yet, so Alyssa was mostly tired, you know, lolling around. I don't mean she was lazy, I just mean she uh, wasn't doing that much, and it was cold. Um, and uh, she... So I, I, I decided I need to get another article published. And I saw a call for proposals in a, something called International some, a, a Language and Identity Journal or something where I'd seen some of my favorite articles get published. And so I wrote this really long, complex piece um, about just connecting a bunch of ideas. The same way that my entire book is like I took one idea and then I connected to the next idea, to the next idea, to the next idea, to the next idea, until I get back to the original idea. That's how I write. If you all don't know this by now, I do like a spider. I do like a big circle. I go from A to B to C to D to E to F to G to H, all the way back around until I get back to A. And I think it's actually really cool the way I do things. But this was the first time I really tried to do that. Um, and I thought it was really good. But for whatever reason... I uh, didn't end up having the confidence to do it. So BJ, who has been very supportive of me, suggested that BC Teal, British Columbia, teaching English to additional language journal, would be interested in my type of work. So I literally emailed the editor and was like, hey, would you be interested in something like this? He said, sure, send it over. Send it to him. This is January 2020. And, you know, he sent it out for review. Ezel was born February 18th, 2020. We were in the hospital for a week. There were some very slight complications. Ezel was born small. He's fine, obviously. Um, it's not obvious, but he is. Um, and, you know, at that time, I'm just like, everything's different. I actually joined my, my class from the hospital because when babies are two days old, all they do is sleep. Um, so I held him and he didn't wake up. I was just on the computer. Um, I don't know if they thought that was absurd for me to join from the hospital, but that's that's what I did. And uh, and then, you know, I stayed on top of my work. I got weeks ahead of my work. In, in the hospital, I did a lot of work because, like, again, he's mostly sleeping. Um, and then, yeah, we came back, and, I, you know, people came to visit us, and it was really ex- a really exciting time. And, you know, I had abstained from drinking the whole pregnancy because I wanted to I wanted to get a, I wasn't drinking too much, but like I sometimes would, you know, go out late or whatever. And I didn't want that to be where I was after I had a kid. So I made the choice. She didn't ask me. I made the choice. I told her, I'm not going to drink in pregnancy. But I did have a small bottle of champagne in the hospital when we finished. And I went to the, a bar once uh, later that week because whatever. I was in Greenwich, Connecticut, of all places. Um, same hospital that Garrett Cole's son was later born in. So clearly Garrett Cole should give me some money to start all of my research ideas um anyway so then we get home and one of the things i was excited about was like you know um i was home for a few weeks and we were going to go back out into the world after that and i was convinced that uh you know things would start to be you know i'm gonna have a kid i'll be at work whatever and things would open back up and I'd be back out in the world. And this was March of 2020. And you know what happened in New York City and everywhere, but especially New York City. So everything was a mess. I've already told that story. Um, and it was really a challenge to, you know, 
lot of people were saying we should just stop the semester completely. I think that the schools had too much invested to stop, so I kept going. I wanted to keep going because I needed to take my mind off of the sirens. Um, and yeah, we kept going with class, um, but we got a week or two off here and there. Um, work became, again, I had another issue where I wasn't doing well at work because I wasn't focusing because I was in a room with a baby. Um, and again, having unmanaged ADHD in a room with a baby is not great. I didn't get mad at the baby. I just didn't really focus on my work. I missed, I did a lot of like sloppy mistakes, you know? And, uh, yeah, but that whole spring, I, uh, we know what happened at the end of the spring, right? And in May of that year, I finished and, 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 you know, my, my chapter that was going into that book was, was submitted and it was accepted. And I started to really have a team of people around me. Um, I had really started, the audience for this grew a lot. Um, I really started to do some good work, I think, on this podcast. I think I did good stuff at the beginning, but I had some really interesting episodes around then. I did like 13 weeks in a row because I just needed something to do. Um, and yeah. And what happened is, and you've heard part of this story before, we all know what happened to George Floyd. Or I should say, we all know what Derek Chauvin did to George Floyd. And I tell you now, the end of 2021 or the beginning of 22 when you listen to this, still haven't watched that whole video. What's the point? I don't need to see that. I don't know why you needed to see that. Um, but the video that really got to me was Amy Cooper. I've met people exactly like Amy Cooper. They haven't done that specific thing to me, but I think things like that have happened to me where um, I'm acting like anybody else, but all of a sudden people are scared of me. Uh, I'm not saying I did anything wrong, but like that's not what I'm talking about in this situation. And I said, that's what really pissed me off. That's what really pissed me off. It was um, the Amy Cooper video. Because it's clear that she's making it up, right? You can see her go from normal to, like, hysterical. That's a word that's been used against women, but I think. And it's okay in this scenario. Anyway. Um, and that's what really, that's what really got to me. And I got mad. I went through my friends list and started deleting people. I do this every couple of years. Every time, I, every time something racial happens, I see what people are saying. And if they're not sitting up now on Facebook is different because people don't really use Facebook like that. But like back when I was using it a lot and people were using it a lot, there were people when racial or racism would happen and they said something. Now saying something doesn't mean you're doing anything. But I, from my friends, if you know me, I wanted to know that you had something to say. If, this, if what you had to say wasn't good enough, that's a problem, but it's a different problem from saying nothing. And again, if you never use Facebook, that's one thing. But if I see you on there making posts, and you don't have anything to say about this person who was killed. That said something to me. So I did this in 2014 when Eric Garner was, the video came out. I did it in 20, and then I was I did it again 2017 or something. Um, and then I did it again. Yeah. And so people reacting to George Floyd had a lot of thoughts for me. Um, I got a lot of messages because it had been known at this point that I was researching and writing about uh, whiteness, right? That second article, the Decentering Whiteness ELT article, the one that kind of kickstarted everything, 
um, it had just come out. Now, these people had not read this article, but this was being spread around the field. For an accent of history, people were really interested in my work because I wrote about whiteness right at the time when people seemed to care about racism for a second. I just got lucky. And I only got lucky because... During quarantine, during the initial lockdown, um, I had extra time, and the editor sent it to me, and he gave me a deadline, and I just edited it that day. Why wait? So he sent it back to him. Sent it back to me. Sent it back to him. Sent it back to me. Sent it back to him. Um, And it went really fast. So they like they sent it back to me in like April, and the re-editing process took like three weeks, and then they put it up the end of May, same week that the George Floyd murder happened. Or I should say Derek Chauvin murder happened. And it was the same week that Harry Amy Cooper acted the fool. And my article was published the same week. I don't know how that happened. Because I wrote it in January. Um, so everybody went to talk to me. And around this time, um, I had two pivotal conversations. I had one friend who messaged me saying, Hey, I don't know if you remember me. First of all, if you're starting with, I don't know if you remember me, don't ask me a question about racism. You can just fuck off. But anyway, and she asked me, and I, I did remember her, I know who she is, but anyway, she says, I just want to make sure that I'm just adding to this, but that's what I assume she sounded like. It was a Facebook message. So I make sure that my daughter does all the right things. We make sure that we have her watch Doc McStuffins, um, whatever. And I gave her some advice. And then I was just kind of annoyed. I turned to my wife, and I was just like, people keep asking me questions. Uh, She's like, well, you do know this stuff, right? So why are you giving this information for free? I was like, eh, I'm not going to put anything together. Another person who was not white, but who was Asian, asked me, Justin, and I actually know her. I've talked to her. Um, You know, yesterday I was really conflicted about something. I saw somebody, like, walking down the street with a machete, and I just, like, I, I felt like I had to call the police, but is that the wrong thing to do, blah, blah, blah. Now, that's... It's kind of a weird question, but, like, I don't know. The whole point of not calling the police is so people aren't in danger, but if someone's legitimately and potentially in danger, I think that that is something that could be warranted to call the police, but I don't know. I think people are of many minds on that. Um, but that was a nuanced question. Anyway, so my wife said, put a class together. Everything that happens, she seems to initiate. Um, because I'm tentative. Like, I, I, I come off really confident right here, but I'm not that confident. Um, I'm getting more confident. I believe in my writing, but so I, I send message both of them to say, Hey, so I'm putting a class together. If you're interested, I'm, uh, you know, I'm really going to go over all this stuff with you. And the one person who asked me, how can I make my daughter less racist? Stop. Just didn't respond. To be clear, she has plenty of money. She was one of those people who was complaining last year, uh, in 2020 about, you know, the the schools being closed and they had also been on vacation to Joshua Tree in California and rented the house for a month. So, you know what? You'll be fine. You will be fine. Um, and the other person who also has plenty of money. Um, and I also realized like part of the reason that I have any skill with this is that I know these people who went to Princeton or whatever and had plenty of money and they want to do things differently. They don't know if they want to abandon capitalism, which is a whole thing. But uh, they want to do things differently, and I can speak to them. For better or worse, I know how to talk to these people. So I put, the, I asked them both, and the second person said yes. She told me, let me talk to some friends. She got two people together. 
told her how much it was. They said yes. And that's like, oh shit. I have a class. Now I gotta make a class. <laughs> and I kept advertising. Um, some other person paid me. The first person who paid me was I gave a talk based on my article, and it was the first one I did, and they were all in Japan, so it was very early on Saturday morning. Um, but that went well. And, you know, it was giving me stuff I wasn't getting for my job, which I was, again, not doing well at the time. Um, and, you know, that felt really gratifying. And it was a weird thing. Part of the reason to not doing well at my job is that I was, fe- I was feeling so confident in my work outside of the work that going back to the job where, I, where, like, I also knew that our work wasn't going to matter, not just in general, because they didn't know what when we were going to be teaching. We were all online. We hadn't done any teaching at all. And so they gave everybody busy work. And I can't, I can't do busy work. I just can't do it. So I did it, but I was just sort of doing other stuff at the same time. So anyway, um, so I had to put the class together. And you can hear, you, if you want to know what's in the class, you can just ask me. But um, I put it together and they signed up and I got some clients. Like I consistently got clients. I got people, you know, asking me to do talks. I did a talk for the people in Japan. And then I did an unpaid talk for a large group. It's interesting. Sometimes I don't mind doing an unpaid talk for a large group or for students, because a lot of the time, if the students want to reach out to me and have conversations afterwards, I find that valuable. And for a large group, sometimes somebody in there has something interesting that they want to say. So for the British group, IA TEFL, I gave this talk and I, I did not know how this would go. This is a big, this is like 400 people, right? online and you know you gotta make sure your internet works right and wasn't paid and this was my my director for my master's program asked me to do it so i did it people really liked it and i was really surprised um because it was bold like this is not a conversation that had been happening in language teaching you know what i'm saying so i did this and then the director for my master's program said justin you know that was great we loved it um would you write a blog post about it, like describing what you said. I said, like, who, who cares? Like, I, I did the presentation. The video exists. Who cares? Um, but I wrote it, and I went on with my life. Summer semester in, in school was weird. We had two abbreviated classes. They didn't either, neither of them went super well, but I got my grades, and it was fine. Um, I, that was not a great semester. I just was rushing through the work because I was doing a lot of stuff. That was also around when I wrote that Washington Post article and I wrote that first language magazine article. So I was just, I was all over the place. The Washington Post article, the, t- the tweet that led to the Washington Post article, it wasn't that big of a tweet. It's like 2,700 people. And, uh, but that's how it got me an article and it was about the pandemic pods and, uh, you know, I was on a bunch of people's podcasts and a bunch of like newspaper articles and like I was quoted like I knew what I was talking about I was like what is this that was a really interesting summer meanwhile at work I'm just like whatever um I was on the the news in Atlanta I was on the news in Atlanta you know and this is of course before CRT blew up and it was a whole thing so that was just a really cool summer for things I was doing and I was on stuff throughout the fall in September it's now my third year. I was in two interesting classes. I was in one that was on like scholarly writing. And it was about different genres of writing with like a legend of scholarship. 
David Connor, who, if you don't know, DISCRIT, right, Disability Critical Race Studies, um, is uh, credited to Subini Anama, who is great, who I've also corresponded with, not like closely, but we've sent a couple of messages on Twitter, and David Connor, and another person who I can't remember. Um, but David Connor is like, really, he's done great work. You know, he busts up genres. And uh, we were going through different genres of writing. And I was actually planning to write for something, for one thing. And I chose another thing. Um, I chose to go back to Language Magazine. And I found out that Language Magazine really liked our work, which is why VJ and Scott and I have done this year-long series on ELT After Whiteness. Because I realized there's a value in these magazines that is far beyond other things. People read these magazines. Um, and nobody reads journals because journals are trash. Anyway, uh, and around the same time, someone emailed me asking if I would review a book proposal for them. This is how publishers get you, right? They said, hi, we have a book proposal on anti-racism. I've heard of your work. Would you be interested in reviewing it? It's a proposal, not a book, right? It's like three pages. Who cares? So sure, they said, we'll pay you. We'll send you two books. In payment. This is how publishers pay. They don't give you money. They give you books. Um, so I said, sure. But in that email, it also said, I'd also like to talk to you about publishing your work if you are interested. And I said, hmm. Around this time, a very, very small publisher, independent publisher, had approached me about potentially doing something. And I was sort of interested, sort of not. I just wanted to get my work out there, you know. Um, and he seemed like a nice man, but he told me that most of his authors make about $500 a year from their residuals. That's a lot of work for $500 a year, man. I didn't even realize how much work a book is. But anyway, so... He seemed like a nice man. I eventually met him in late 2021 at a conference, which is a month ago now, so early November. Remains a very nice man. Uh, but I just sort of let him down gently or stopped responding to him. Because um, if I signed a contract with him, I would have had to do it. And I did, I, you know, I, I still had to work on my schoolwork. My plan was to make my book and my dissertation the same project, but that didn't end up happening. So I ended up with a book and a dissertation at the same time. This is ridiculous, right? But anyway, so that fall, I had the um, David Connor class, and, an, and I had another independent project. And in this one, I wanted to build on my you know, sort of bubbling ideas about whiteness and ability and, and what constituted a disorder. So I started with this project because I had seen Tucker Carlson say something about antisocial thugs. And I said, why? I'm hearing this antisocial a lot, right? And I assume they don't mean people who don't want to go to parties because that's technically asocial, not antisocial, right? Antisocial really means they want to just, you know, mess up society. They're anti-society. Um, although we tend to use it colloquially to mean I don't want to go to a party, but that's asocial. Anyway, um, so I started running with this idea and I wrote this this. 20 pages of a thing. That was my project that fall. Um, and then they got back to me and said they were interested in my work. But I realized that I had to adapt it 
because this is a language publisher. I had to adapt his language. So I had this idea that was just going to be out whiteness and ability and antisocial and whatever. And then I had to just sort of graft language onto it like a skin graft. But I found a way. (laughs) And they really liked my proposal. They didn't offer me notes at all. I even gave them a proposal of all the chapters. I was worried that they didn't like it because it took them a while, but then you realize that publishers, just like academics, are just very slow and everything was great. And then by the end of the semester, they said they were all for it. Now, let's be clear, the woman who contacted me is the boss. So it was ultimately up to her, but it means they they didn't even offer a single note. And hey, we'll see. You'll hear much more about this as I get closer to the publication date, which is probably about a year from now. But as of now, I have not received any pushback from them. I've been very clear with them when they send it to reviewers. There are people in the language field who reject the premise of what I'm doing, right? Because I don't have any quote-unquote evidence for whiteness's existence, right? I don't have any proof that removing whiteness will make things better. It's ultimately a conceptual argument, although I do use some of my research from my classes um, in the conclusion. But she's been very supportive. You know, she said she has no interest in finding a reviewer that doesn't support my vision. You know, it'll be someone who's going to give me constructive, people who are going to give me constructive criticism. So we'll see what happens. That's how, yeah. And then I, then I got the book contract and I read it and my wife was like, that's a bad contract. And I looked up other contracts and apparently it is a bad contract, but contracts are just bad. <laughs> yeah, I get some small percentage of every book sold. Um, my plan actually is to hopefully get use the books as a marketing tool. Like if I go and talk about the book at conferences or if I give talks based on the book, if I get one consulting client for every 25 books sold, right? A consulting client, depending on what it is, is between five and $700, depending on what, I have, what I'm doing for them. If I get one for, if the book is 20 to $25, then I get one client for every 20, 25 books sold. Then not only do I get a percentage of each book sold, but then I would get a client. So that's my point. That's, that's where I make, you know, make some dollars. If every 20, 25 books, one person is like, I want to work with him in some capacity. If it's less often than that, right? If it's every 50 books, well, sure, that's not as great, but it can work. So that's the point. I just need to get, I need to use the book to get people to work with me because I have a lot of ideas, man. A lot of things I want to do with this field. I don't know what's going to happen to me career-wise as I record this. I have some apps out to some TESOL jobs, although TESOL jobs do not pay because it is a shitty field. Um, but we'll see. So that's that's how I ended up with a book contract. As a third-year doctoral student, they approached me. And again, this person, I didn't say this, and I should have said it, but it's okay. She didn't see any of my presentations. She hadn't even read my Decentering Whiteness article. She read my blog post that my director for my master's program asked me to write. That's why I mentioned that to you, because I didn't want to write it, but I said, sure, fine, whatever. I wrote it in an hour, and then she put it up, and then this person read the blog post as a description. One presumes she was looking for talent, but this was she was like, oh, this is what I want. So I don't know. There's so much free labor in academia, 
and they tell you, if you do this free labor, it'll work out for you. And most of the time, it does not. Most of the time, it is bullshit. But in this case, an hour of free labor led to a book. And the thing about it is, is that as some, as a scholar I was talking to about a year ago told me, when I hadn't quite finalized the contract yet, even if you don't get this contract, if one publisher's interested, probably another one would be too, which is true. Um, it would have been disappointing, but it's true. And another thing that's true, once you've published a book, it's much easier to get either a better contract or a second contract, which I haven't tried to do yet because i got to finish my degree. But one of the riskiest things for any publisher is, can this person actually complete an entire book? And I did. I wrote the whole thing. I wrote it in five and a half months. Now, we'll see where the night's good. But anyway, I'll, I will go into the process of writing the book uh, next time. And I also will go into the process of choosing a dissertation topic because around this time, all I'm doing is I'm writing this stuff. I'm working on all of these projects. I'm overwhelmed. I'm working on all these projects. Uh, I'm, I'm working on these articles outside of school and obviously still working, although, again, not doing well because in the fall of 2020, I almost lost my job because I wasn't doing well. So people maybe don't listen to me, but, you know. I can't, I tell you, it was unmanaged ADHD that allowed me to not focus on my work. Um, and yeah, then I, uh, I was doing the ESO project and I realized that the ESO project, I didn't want it to be something separate. I wanted to be able to use my ESO project work, uh, in my dissertation, in my research. As I said, this ESO project, the Decentering Whiteness classes and this podcast, like this is legitimate scholarship. Maybe not this episode where I'm just talking about myself, but when I talk to people, like really drawing out ideas, that's legitimate scholarship. It's just as legitimate as a journal article, even if it's not peer reviewed. I'm not making any claims. So, um, but as idea development, it's legitimate. So, yeah, that is how I got to the book contract. And then 2021 came, and I had to figure out how to, I had to do my comps. I had to create a dissertation proposal. I had to get through the IRB, and then I had to do a dissertation. And I also had to write a book. And I also had to finish my classes. So that's what we're going to talk about in the third and final of these three. How did I get from applying to school to create to finishing the dissertation research uh, episodes or becoming a so-called scholar? Now, to be clear. I will not be finished writing my dissertation at the end of the next episode, but I'll be finished with the research. So that's the point I'm going to leave you at at the end of the next episode. All right.